Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network and our apologies to anybody who may have missed the news this morning. Not sure what was happening there, but apparently uh, the reports are coming in that we're getting the thumbs up. Indeed, most of them are, are working. There's still a couple that aren't quite there yet, but for the most part, we're, we, uh, we're doing good. Or it may, be, it may be just coming through as a bit of a delay. But anyway, whatever it is, whatever it is, we are out there. And we are indeed. it is a new day. It is. And it is, a, it is an amazing day. It is an awesome day. It is a freezing, cold, wet, rainy, grey day. But if we didn't have freezing, cold, wet, rainy days, where would we be? In dry, hot days. Drought. Drought. And that wasn't fun. We had that last year. Indeed. We don't want drought. No. Okay, so what are you thankful for this morning, Liam? This morning, I am uh, thankful for my mum. Last night, I got, my mum and my brother, last night I got to listen. I was speaking to my mum, and she was putting my little brother to bed. And um, when I was little, she used to pray with me every night before I went to sleep. And she did that with my brother. And I forgot what it was like to pray with mum before I go to bed. <laughs> nice. And it was, it, it was very warming. So. There is nothing like a mother's prayers. I uh, know. So thank you, mum. Yeah, fantastic. And a big shout out to all the mums out there that pray with their kids this morning or pray for their kids. Don't ever, ever stop praying for your kids. Um, You have no idea just how powerful those prayers are. I am super thankful for a big shout out to uh, Aaron this morning who is faithful and lets us know when we're not on air. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, We're getting there. where Where would we be? without uh, people to uh, give us a hand and, and let us know what's going on? That's a very good question. Um, but, yeah, look, the, again, we're, we're getting there and we will continue to get there and we'll give updates as the morning goes ahead. Um, but, yeah. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right. What have we got for positively different news? Positively different news. Before we go there, actually, last week uh, we mentioned something that we would do this week that we haven't done yet because I forgot it yesterday, um, and that is naming my plants. Do you remember that? Naming my yes, plants. Yes, I, yes, yes. I've got a picture. Oh, I've got a picture of my plants for you to look at. I was going to bring my. I was going to bring my cactus in. Oh, really? I was, and we could just sort of name it, but. Well, I, I didn't bring my plant in, but I did take a picture, and um, I'll just show you the picture there. Oh, yep. So that's the uh-huh. picture of my plant. The okay. um, the one that one there is the the succulent, yep. the one I'm most proud of. It's been growing beautifully. Let me, let me see that. Let me see that. Let me see that. It's uh, it's also got two little plastic pigs in there, uh, just to keep everything company. And there's a fern and another little cactus succulent. I don't know if it's cacti- if it's a cactus or a succulent. I think it's a cactus. A succulent's the herb version of a pig i don't know i just know that succulents are the easiest plants to keep because they essentially are water which means that they need very little water which means they just grow naturally yes Um, they're not as they're not as easily killed no no i have seen a picture of. okay so what names have you come up with for your plants i have come up with none None. That's what I thought. You oh, okay, it. okay. I'll, I'll, yeah, all right. I've seen the pictures. So now. We will cogitate on it and then come back with some names soon. There are there's sort of three, maybe four. I don't know. You could call it four, but really there's only three. There's the one succulent, and the top of the succulent fell off, and I plugged that near next to one of the ferns. There's a fern as well, and there's a, a cactus. It's like it got a, a cactus with a spiderweb on it. Um, you can't see the spiderweb in the photo, but. When I bought it, it had a spiderweb on it. 
it'll look pretty cool. That's very cool. And that's why I got it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you've got some suggestions for the names of my plants, give us a call. <laughs> I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to take names. Well, Elon Musk just had to rename his child because it didn't comply with California law. Indeed, he changed it from uh, the, the, the one to Latin, the nu- Latin numerals, uh, not Latin, uh, from uh, Arabic numerals to uh, Roman, Roman numerals. numerals. Indeed, I read that and I thought, you know what? <sighs> Interesting world in which we live. It is indeed. Uh, positively different user story. Going, uh, we're going, we're going across the ditch to Europe a little bit. There is a man over there in Belgium who he loves watching TV. And the other day he was watching TV and he heard a little bit of rustling behind him uh, on the porch. And he looked out, and there was a Eurasian eagle owl. Which is An the biggest eagle owl? Eurasian eagle owl. It is the biggest owl in the world. It's got the it's the Guinness World Record. That's and cool. It's got the a wingspan of one point five meters. So it's a very big owl. That's an enormous owl. It's, it's not a small owl. Now I would love to see an owl like that. Now on its own, you know, you think, oh, you beauty, he saw an owl. Move on. That's not the end of the story. This owl kept on coming back. Why would an owl keep on coming back to one spot? Food. No. It's got a nest there. Oh, okay. So it's uh, so this guy in Belgium has got a nest of three baby owls on his back porch. That's <laughs> so cool. And you know what the owls, these baby owls' favourite pastime is? Watching TV with him. So he's got his fa- one of his favourite animals yes. doing, the fa- doing his favourite thing with him. And it's just... It's just a really, really... So he really just switches the TV on and, and they just they just become three little square eyes. Yeah, they just, they just poke their heads up. Out. I think they're in a planter box uh-huh. they've, they've ended up. And um, they just poke their head up and start watching with him. Well, it seems that owl children are very, very much not different from human children. It's just that, that square box with the moving pictures on it is just mesmerising. Oh, indeed. And, you know, I've never seen the, the biggest bird. I wonder whether it will stunt their developmental growth in the same way that it stunts the developmental growth of a child. Now, that's a good question. Yeah. I wonder whether they will be less effective using their imagination. I wonder whether they'll be less effective <laughs> in being able to hunt and fend for themselves because yeah. they grew up on a diet of TV. That's a good question. Yeah, that's that's you're, wow. You've got my mind spinning right now because I've got a story these. coming up that's going to be talking about uh, you know child and, and play and so forth and and Screens what is effective, and technology yeah, all that. Have, what's the biggest bird you've ever like the the most the bird that you've seen that has just left you with the most awe? Well, it, it's it's always going to be eagles. Absolutely. Ah, um, oh. it you know that's raptors, exactly my raptors, answer. Uh, eagles and owls. Um, hawks leave me with the most awe, and so your wedge-tail eagle or your bald eagle, those are the two most spectacular birds that I've ever laid eyes on. Um, the wedge-tail is a little bit bigger than the bald eagle, but the bald, bald eagle is just a stunningly striking bird um, with that you know big white plume of feathers Unmissable. around his head. And you're up there in Wisconsin. I've been, you know, you're out fishing on the lake and you're catching bass, and there's, you know, bald eagle just comes gliding over the top of your head. I got some amazing photos of bald eagles. Not so many of wedge tail eagles. Uh, wedge tail eagles, you're more likely to come close to a wedge tail eagle when they're eating a dead kangaroo on the side of the road. Doesn't make for the greatest photo. But 
Um, yeah, both of them just sensational birds. The other bird that I really like, and the one that I'd like a pet one of, is a crow. I would love to have a pet crow because they are so incredibly intelligent. Just love the intelligence of a crow. I was fully on board with everything you were saying until you mentioned the crow. Nah, yes. I mean, it'd be kind of noisy. I know, I get that. But imagine having a pet that had that level of intelligence. Because, you know, you can, you can, the more intelligence that a pet has, the more you can interact with it. You know, I mean, these things are up there with dolphins and stuff. My, um, my nan used to, when my granddad was alive, he, he had a, a, this couch in the garage. And my nan would open up the garage and my granddad would sit on this, this couch and he had a, 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 um, a bag full of silver side and he'd feed the crows. <laughs> there the, you go. The feeds, the, 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 I think she timed it. So it was around lunchtime every day. And it was around, around lunchtime, all these crows came in uh-huh. and just, and just uh-huh. sort of started. There was a, a light pole around uh, nearby and they just started sitting on the light pole. And then up came the, the garage door and they all came down and... Started chucking out this silver. Now crows side. can be a terrible pest if they get into your orchard and that kind of thing, you know. I, and they can be an enemy, but I just do respect them for their intelligence. But that'd be kind of cool. He feeds crows. You know, most people feed magpies because they sound kind of nice, and crows sound kind of terrible. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he feed crows. There More. Um, oh, look, just birds and animals—they're all amazing. Just uh, wonderful parts of God's creation, and. Uh, I'm just amazed that we get to experience that every single day. Okay, so we are looking at a uh, new research that's come out on what is the best play environment for kids. And here they come in their rankings. Uh, there are five rankings as to what would be the best play environment. What What would you think is the best play environment, Liam? What Numero uno, I would put as the great outdoors. The great outdoors, okay. Someone for, coming from a uh, an outdoor recce. Indeed. Um, okay, so if you were to say that, you would be absolutely correct. Oh, you beauty. Okay, so basically the best environment for kids is nothing. Yeah. Don't give them anything. Just send them outside. Now, of course, if you live in town, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, so the easiest way to solve that, of course, is to move out of town. Um, the extra commute will be well worth it for your children because you will be able to send them outside into the great outdoors. That is number one uh, as the best play environment. Uh, number two, of course, is outdoor playgrounds. Uh, number three, sports. Number three, subreddit. Number four, uh, being indoors. And of course, being indoors, you know, your best kind of play indoors is with things like Lego, that kind of stuff. Um, and bottom of the list, guess what comes on the bottom of the list? Uh, inside. Yes. Inside doing. Computer. Screens. Screens. Screens is on the bottom of the list. That is the worst play environment that you can. Okay, so your natural environment. Um, what they call a bit called natural environment. This is plants, an environment that has plants, rocks, mud, sand, gardens, forest, or ponds, or a combination of the above, is by far the best environment for children to for their cognitive development. Don't give them toys. Don't give them anything. Just give them the bush. That works. We're Australians. We love absolutely. the bush. We should, we should know this already. In fact, uh, one of the founders of our church, Ellen White, wrote about this like 150 years ago. Um, and so what they've discovered is that the more purposeful the play equipment we give to children, the less effective it becomes. So if you build a fort, for instance, that's less effective than kids just pretending to have a fort in the bush. 
Um, they noted in the research that whether kids were in a park or in the bush, their activity level would be the same. So they'd be expending the same amount of energy. So that was positive. But the safer their play environment, the more stunted their cognitive development. They're not taking as many risks. Now, now I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not advocating here in any way, shape or form that you put your children into a dangerous environment. No. That is not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that the safer they make the environment, the more it stunts children's cognitive development. They noticed that kids who played in the bush had a um, higher mood. They had, um, they had large um, upticks in constructive play, in dramatic play, in imaginative play, in exploratory play, that's using all of your five senses, in cooperative play, and were much happier. You know, I would also imagine that uh, if, if kids, especially young children that grew up in the bush, their immune system would probably be much better because of all the dirt that they ate. <laughs> yes, this is, this is very true. And that has good, solid scientific backing as well. Uh, you bring a kid into the city, you put them in an apartment, and they have very, very weak immune systems, very high allergies, no all that kind eat. of stuff. Yeah, because they don't have any dirt to eat. Um, they noted that when, you, when they put children into a basically into what's called a natural environment, which we would call the bush, uh, for their playtime at lunch as compared to a park, that when they came back from that, their figurative language use went up from 31% to 69%. That's pretty dramatic. Just send them out into the into, into the bush for, uh, for for lunch hour. Bring them back in and notice their figurative language go up. It's a big jump. It's a massive jump. Um, they had improvements in their attention level, in punctuality, in concentration, and a decrease in bad behaviour. And so, basically, what they were saying is, the more we intervene in child's play, the worse it gets. Um, and you know. I, I, I just sort of think back to when I was a kid and we'd play fighter planes swinging off a tree branch. We would play forts, you know, in the, in the lower levels of uh, that same pine tree that kind of had lots of branches coming out of it. We would play, you know, pirates by collecting sticks on the ground and making the outline of a pirate ship and, and playing pirates right there. And... Uh, what they're saying is, okay, this is going to be really, really good for children, but when we see children doing that, playing on a tree branch, uh, pretending they're in a fort or pretending that they have you know, some kind of boat that they have made out of sticks that is going to be their pirate ship. So we then, as adults, we look at that and say, okay, we want to do good things for our children. And so we build a park, and in the park we put a fort, we put a we pirate We take the ship. imagination out of it. We take the imagination out of it. And what you find is that children's attention span is dramatically reduced when you do so. This is what the research is finding. It dramatically reduces their attention span when we create artificial um, um, imaginations for them. So, you know, their imagination creates something. And so when we create the artificial thing for them and then their imagination becomes stunted as a result of it. And what they will do is they will play in those environments, but they'll play in those environments for a much shorter space of time than if they dragged some sticks together and pretended that they were in a pirate ship. You know, I remember when I was at school, every single lunchtime we'd go out and we'd build a cubby house. It was a uh-huh. small school, yep. so like the whole school would do it. it was, there was only like 26 kids. So the whole school, would, we'd all go out and we'd all 
like we were all great friends and we'd all build a cubby house. We'd find all the sticks and all the bushes we could and we'd just see what we can come up with. There was another time that we'd go out and we'd, we dug holes. Uh, we dug like trenches and we had uh, leash boat races. Yes. Oh, it's the it was, best. It was great. This, see, this is the best kind of play ever. When I was a kid, we went to a country school and we, our teacher talked to the, to the local farmer, the local cocky, whose paddock was on the back of our school. And he's like, yeah, let him go and play in the paddock. You wouldn't do that these days because of liability and all that kind of stuff. But in that paddock, there were some sections of bush. There was, oh, it was probably 20 acres or so. Um, there was a couple of dams. There was, you know, and we'd go over there and for class, we'd go and find bugs swimming around in the dams and bring them back in jars and all that kind of thing. This is primary school. And it was the best. It's just you amazing. Know, 20 acres of bush and paddocks and cows and and plovers that were nesting and, you know, all of that whole kind of thing that was just, you know, out the back of our school and, and we'd be climbing over the barbed wire fence and through the barbed wire fence to get there and scratching ourselves up. And this is what kids need. The worst thing that you can do for kids is to put them in cotton wool and they turn out to be useless human beings. Remember the days of the old schoolyard. Oh, indeed. That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's some, some of the research that's coming out there. Um, another piece of research along with that is that swearing in front of children, this one was interesting, um, swearing using bad language in front of children increases sexism and misogynistic behavior. So if you want your kids to be misogynistic and to look down on women in particular, then use bad language in front of them. Uh, Coming up next, we've got a song by the Wren Collective called My Lighthouse. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM. In my wrestling and in my doubts, in my failures you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me in my troubled sea Whoa, you are the peace in my troubled sea In the silence you won't let go In the questions your truth will hold Your great love will lead me through You are the peace in my troubled sea
Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, Liam. Yes. We have joining us on the phone this morning, Dr. Sven Erstring. We do indeed. Good morning, Sven. Good morning, guys. It's good to be back with you. And uh, Dr. Erstring, you join us uh, once a month to talk about... Well, apologetics and all kinds of subjects related to apologetics. What is it that we are talking about today? Well, it's it's a, it's a very, very fascinating um, thing we're going to be focusing on today. Um, it's actually a, it's a person, shall I say. Um, and there's a little bit of sadness as, as well with this. And that is uh, one week ago, last Tuesday, um, a worldwide, uh, world famous, I should say, um, Christian apologist, an Indian gentleman uh, by the name of Ravi Zacharias, um, who moved to, to Canada. He passed away. Um, he lost his battle with um, cancer. So, yeah, um, uh, Lyle and Liam, it's, it's a little bit sad, uh, but this is, this is a tribute to him. But it's also really positive in another sense as well, in that we can continue um, the the work that he kind of left off. You know, we can pick up the baton and and run with it. So um, that's what really gives me hope. And also that, you know, when Jesus returns, when he raises uh, the, the people who believe in him, who passed away, we'll actually get to, to meet Ravi as well, which is really, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think that, um, and, and as you say, as you know, we look back at the life of this particular individual, uh, Ravi Zacharias, and you describe him as an Indian gentleman, and I think that's a fantastic description right there because uh, it, I think it was I think it was important for Christianity and for our world to have someone who was an Indian and also an apologist, because in the West we tend to get less gentlemanly like than what people from India, you know, I, I have lots of Indian friends and they're just so incredibly polite. Yes, and uh, this yes. guy was just the epitome of what it means to be a gentleman. You know, you look at some of the uh, YouTube material out there where people just, you know, they just absolutely go at him and he treats them with respect, he treats them with dignity. And it was just a great example of somebody who who knew his material, who knew his Lord, and respected everybody, regardless of where they were coming from. An Indian in Canada. You can't really get much nicer than that, can you? <laughs> yes, yes. And I guess one of the things, um, Lila Liam, about um, Ravi, and, you know, we have, uh, there's, a, there's an Indian gentleman living in the United States who's a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of Ravi as well. But I think one of the things um, with an Indian person, um, particularly if they grew up in India, um, I guess it's a bit like the life of Pi, if you remember that movie or story. Um, they they live in a culture uh, where there's Hindus, um, Muslims, Catholics, uh, Christians, all living to, together uh, in this this religious melting pot, and of course you've got the Sikhs, you've got Baha'i, you've got the um, Jan, you've got you know the so so they really have to um, to learn to understand their religious faith in the context of other people who may have a different faith, and that's what you know that combines that graciousness, but also that that deep sense of of um, 
um, searching and, and relating to people as well. And one of the things I want to focus on uh, today is one of his best-selling books, uh, which was the book Can Man Live Without God? And uh, he he um, uh, presented a number of lectures at Harvard University, one of the top universities of the world of the world. And then he uh, came away and he wrote up these lectures uh, as as a book. And so it's a really interesting question: Can man live without God? Uh, it makes you stop and think. It certainly does. What was you know when you go through his 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 arguments that he puts forward there um, at the university level and then in his book, what are some of the highlights, I guess, or the uh, salient points that he makes in relationship to whether man can live without God? Because I mean, when we look around the world, atheism is a very small minority of our world. That that's right. That's right. So um, atheists represent about uh, four or five percent of the world. Uh, so it's actually a really, really small group. And even here in Australia, uh, where we have a, a growing number of people who will tick on their, um, on their census that they have no religion, they no religious faith. Uh, the fact is this, what they're referring to is they're saying, we don't, uh, connect ourselves with any organized religion. Um, they're not actually saying that they don't have any spirituality or they don't believe in God or higher power. Um, so what, what he's really asking is this, can man live without God? Now, of course, a lot of people would say, well, I know of atheists, so you, you can live without God. Uh, you know, you, you, can, um, you don't have to, to be religious, you don't have to be spiritual. But he's talking about in a deeper sense in, in what he's asking is if God really does exist – can we actually live, which is a very, very profound um, question. And what he does is in this book, he starts off uh, with a story by a atheist uh, philosopher, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, it's, a, it's a parable. It's a really interesting parable. So let me just kind of summarize. It's, it's called The Madman. Um, so he's got this, this madman who, who has this lantern, um, and he runs into the marketplace in the middle of the day, and he cries out, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. And then there's all these people standing around who don't believe in God in the marketplace, and they just laugh at him. They say, you know, um, have you lost him? Has he lost his way? Is he hiding? Um, is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a journey? Has he immigrated uh, somewhere else? And they just laugh and they um, shout and they um, you know, make a whole lot of fun of him. And then he, this, this madman in this parable by Friedrich Nietzsche, um, he responds to them. He gets really upset with them and he says, where has God gone? He says, I'll, I'll tell you, we have killed him. You and I, we are his murderers. And then he asks all these really interesting questions. How have we done this? Of course, as, keep in mind, this is a parable. Um, so it's, it's a story. But he says, you know, how were we able to drink up all of the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Uh, what did we do to unchain the earth from its sun? And, um, you know, which way is up? Which way is down? Uh, where, how do we know where we're, we're actually going? And, um, and then he, he goes all silent, this madman, um, in this story. And, um, he, he just dashes the lantern to the ground and says, I've come too early. Um, the time has not yet come. You guys don't understand, um, what this really means when humanity tries to kill God. 
in terms of the get rid of God, move him out of schools, in, in terms of out of the law, all of those kind of things. So what he is really saying, um, this story is saying is this, is that when we remove God, we remove our, our point of reference in life. We remove, you know, when, when you're uh, flying a, pa- a plane, one of your points of reference is the horizon. So if you've got no horizon, then you don't know where you are. Um, you're like flying through a, a snowstorm kind of thing. Mm. Um, if, if, you, if you untether the earth from the sun, then, then we're basically um, we're just floating. We're straying through an infinite nothing, as, as, um, as Nietzsche says. And so what uh, Ravi does is he identifies four areas that if we remove God, then we're in big, big trouble as a human race. So, so here we go. First one, if God does not exist, then there's no objective point of reference for any moral framework. Yes. Uh, so for, for moral values, unless we have an objective uh, point of reference, if, unless we have God, there is no way to condemn anything. And I'll give you a really interesting um, example of this. I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, just sharing with her. So she was an atheist. And... Um, one of the things she said to me, we were talking about morality, and she finally got to the point where she said, I don't think rape is wrong. And I was, I was absolutely shocked. And, I, and, and what she said was, well, it happens all the time in, in nature, so what does it matter if it, it um, happens in, in the human race? And I'm going like, this is, this is throwing all of our moral and legal framework out the window. But that's exactly what happens when you remove God from the picture. If we don't have God, then all of the morals that we want to, we need to have, I should say, um, just disappear. You know what I mean? So, so that's the first one, which is really, really um, important. Mm. And um, Ravi gives this really interesting example. Uh, he, he gives an example of, of, say, you're stopped at the lights. So uh, you're stopped at the lights. You just happen to look down. Um, in your um, in your car, perhaps you're um, obviously you're not looking at your mobile phone because uh, we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> but maybe you're, you're just um, you're looking down, you know, checking whether your umbrella's there on a rainy day, whatever. And um, you look up and you see the car beside you moving. Now the question is, I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience, um, but sometimes in a sort of moment, you you just wonder you to yourself, am I moving or are they moving? Yes. And, and you're not quite sure. And, and it can be a really disconcerting experience. Sometimes you have this when you're in a train um, and, and there's another train on the other side of the platform. And so, you, you, kind of, you know, are we going or are they going or who, who's actually moving here? Um, so, so what you do at that point, when, when you want to find out who, um, who's moving – you look for an objective point of reference. So you look for a lamppost or a, um, uh, a tree. And if you can see that the tree is stationary, then, but the car beside you is moving, then you know that that car is moving, you're not moving. So you don't need to slam on the brakes uh, because you might be you know, uh, rolling away. So, so it's the objective point of reference. Now, then Ravi asks this, this question, what happens if when you look at the tree, 
it's moving as well in terms of it, what what happens if everything is moving in terms of there's there's this constant state of flux then we're in big problems because we we have no way of working out who who's actually moving what's up what's down uh what's moving forward what's moving backwards so it's a really interesting example the second thing uh, that he says is if god is dead then there's no point of reference for meaning in life uh, i mean that's that's um it would be a little bit uh people might debate that uh, but that's what he's saying. You cannot actually define what meaning means. Everybody finds their own meaning. Let me give you an example for that. Um, and, and it's a, it's a sort of sobering example. You know, there are some, um, adults, some adult men who will go to, uh, countries in South, Southeast Asia and they will hire children as prostitutes you know to to for their pleasure uh, just to put it uh, um directly and they would say we can we find meaning in that we we this is meaningful but you know the the issue is this is that if everyone defines their own meaning in life then then effectively we cannot say anything is right or wrong it comes back to that morality mm-hmm. um the other thing as well as this is that it also destroys what we do really find meaningful. So, for example, if there's a ICU nurse or if there's a doctor um, who's working really, really hard um, to, uh, to save patients who have COVID-19 in the ICU unit, um, the fact is this, is that effectively what they're doing is, is meaningless because if they die and the patients die and everybody dies, then it's it's lost all its meaning. It's it's basically pointless, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so that that's the second thing that there's um, meaning in life goes out the window. So so you know you go through life. Um, what what's the point? Um, and he makes this really interesting comment uh, that meaninglessness does not come in the midst of pain. Uh, Rabbi makes this point that meaninglessness comes from being weary of of pleasure. So, so you can have all of the yachts, you can have all of the, you know, the parties, the drink, but when you realize I'm just weary of pleasure, when it's a good thing, then you start to really, um, you start to wonder, okay, well, what's, you know, what is there in life? Then the third thing is this, outside of God, there is no hope. So there's nothing left beyond the grave. And this is the amazing thing. In Christianity, Christianity says that Jesus died, he was buried in the tomb, but he rose back to life. So there is hope. When we have God, we have hope, um, which is amazing. And then the final thing that he says is, is that there's no, what he says, no full recovery. There's, there's no resolution um, to, to life. So, you know, Hitler... Uh, went out, he killed a whole lot of Jews, he killed a whole lot of um, gypsies and, and gays as well. Um, then he went down into a bunker, he pulled out a revolver and shot himself. Um, but the point is this, is that we intrinsically, we say, that's just not just. That's just not just. Whereas in uh, if God exists, ultimate justice will be done. Mm-hmm. So if you follow Jesus, this is what Ravi says, you find a reference point for morality, 
You have a reference point for meaning, you have a reference point for hope, and you have a reference point for full recovery or ultimate justice as well. And um, I just think, you know, he, he puts all of these stories in. It's just an amazing read. But I, I say this is that, you know, when we're looking at a tribute for, for Ravi, um, Zacharias, one of the things he would say is, you know, pick up the baton of sharing the good news, the truth about Jesus, and keep carrying that baton on. And that's the best tribute we can ever give to, um, to a gentleman like him. Dr. Sven Erstring, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, we must move on with the show, but there is plenty of his material, uh, Ravi Zacharias's material on YouTube for anybody who would like to check it out there or grab one of his books. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, we have a question of the day that has come in. And Question of the day. Yes. It reads a little bit like this. The principles of the Ten Commandments existed before we were created, but not the actual ten. The Sabbath wasn't around until the earth was created. I don't commit adultery either, as I don't think the angels were married. So this is a, it's more of a, it's come to us in more of a comment rather than a question. And somebody else has also questioned whether thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not kill existed uh, before our world existed and human beings existed. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time commenting on these one at a time. First of all, is the Sabbath a good thing? Yes. Okay. It, and, 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 and in answering this question, I'm going to say this. I don't know exactly how the Ten Commandments were framed before our world was created. But we know that the Sabbath is a good thing. We know the Sabbath is a positive thing. And so if the Sabbath is a good thing and the Sabbath is a positive thing, my question would be, why would God not give it to the universe previous to our world and why would he restrict it just to our world? And the reason I ask that question is because now I'm going to share something that we do know. And this is from Isaiah. So if we flick over to Isaiah chapter 66, we're going to find that this is God's method. This is how God operates. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 22, the Bible says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed in your name remain. It will come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Okay, so we know that the Sabbath will be central to the worship of God for the rest of eternity after Jesus comes back to this earth after the new earth is created. And so if it's going to be central to the worship of God through the rest of eternity, why would it not be central to the worship of God previous to this? And so that when God created our world and rested on the seventh day, he was simply acting within the pattern that he used when he created the rest of the universe. And so when he created other planets, you know, it's it's still a seven-day period. It might be a longer or a shorter one depending on the size of their planet and its rotation around its sun, whatever it might be. But I think it would be fairly safe to assume that this is what God does and this is how God operates and this is God's method and this is God, how God has structured the universe. If it's going to exist like this for eternity, into the future, why would we say that it didn't exist into the past in eternity? Okay, so there's my comment on the Sabbath. When it comes to the one about adultery, 
The Bible says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And the comment is, well, this is not really relevant in heaven because the angels don't get married. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 30, the Bible says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So in the context of that verse, yes, in the context of angels, I would say that the the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, is not relevant to the angels. But what about the rest of the universe? I would say it is relevant to the rest of the universe. We don't know who and what is out there in the rest of the universe that God has created, but who's to say that is not relevant for the rest of the universe if there are other beings out there? And this would be the same with thou shalt not kill, uh, because as soon as sin comes in, and sin came in long before our world, then death comes in as well. Now, were these Ten Commandments codified in the way that they are since sin has existed? Probably not. They were simply an expression of love, but since sin has come into existence, they have been codified and placed in the Bible. So there's a couple of uh, thoughts on the Ten Commandments, the eternal constitution of the government of God. 